country's anthem Shout your land's undying fame Light the wondrous tale of nations With your people's golden name Tell your father's noble story Raise on high your country's sign Join then in the final glory Brother, lift your flag with mine Hail the son of peace, new rising hold the war clouds close upon blend our banners all my brothers in the rainbow of the world red as blood and blue as heaven wise as age and proud as Melt our banner wonder-woven In the one great light of truth Build the road of peace be slow and check the eager help the weak and keep the strong none shall push aside another none shall let another fall march beside me
Boss tells me I've got to stay down where I belong. Tells me my place must be way down and I'll get along. Tells me that I should be humble and mend my ways. But I say boss man will tumble one of these days I've got a right to lift my head up Got a right to lift it way up high I've got a right to lift my head up Got a right to look up at the sky My heart has had double of grief and trouble. I want to know the reason why. I've got a right to change my blues song, got a right to sing out clear and loud. I've got a right to sing a new song, got a right to teach it to the crowd. There must be a showdown for all the lowdown so they can stand up tall and proud. No Jim Crow laws, no more. No chain gangs on the levee. Swanee shore with no trees hanging heavy so I can see the sky shining way up high. I've got a right to lift my head up, got a right to lift it way up high. Cause I've learned my lesson now I'll hold my head high until the day I die. And uh, good morning, mutineers. You are tuned. Mutiny Radio. <clears throat> the name of the show is Labor and Love Radio, the show where we tell you how it is. If one person gets a dollar they didn't work for, someone else worked for a dollar they didn't get. You don't have a seat at the table, the negotiating table, that is, where you work. <coughs> You're on the menu. Your life is on the menu. And
And never, but never let anyone into your heart who is not a friend of labor. It's just a waste of time. When I say labor, I mean you. Labor and Love Radio, where the labor meets the road. Welcome, everybody. Out of late today. Welcome to the show, the show where we bring you the energy from the past into the present and carry it into the future. And that energy is the labor movement. In general, people organizing to make their lives better, people organizing to unelect a dictator and a tyrant. So we played some happy music to start out. We started out with Paul Robeson singing Beethoven's Ode to Joy, Beethoven's expression in his Ninth Symphony of the ultimate brotherhood of all people and the ultimate triumph of regular people. Then we had the Rivers of Babylon from the movie. That's where I saw it, the Melodians from the movie uh, The Harder They Come. And Laura Duncan. haven't played her before. Registering her insistence that she's got a right. Let's jump right in here to Radio Labor our worldwide labor report. Aid in the continent. The U.S. remains the leading donor in Africa. Which Uh-oh. Pardon me. This is Solidarity News on Radio Labor. This is a Radio Labor World Report recorded on Friday, November 13th, 2020. I'm Mark Boulanger. In the report this week, what African unions want from a Biden presidency? The massive amount of data being collected on school children. The Labor Start report about union events and singing. This is Radio Labor. Unions around the world are reacting favorably to the elections in the United States, which saw the defeat of Donald Trump and the choice of Joe Biden as president-elect. But labor leaders say there is much to be done. To get a view from Africa, I talked to Sonia Mabunda Kazaboni. Ms. Mabunda Kazaboni is the International Secretary of the Congress of South African Trade Unions. COSATU, which represents some 1.8 million union members, has said it hopes for changes in U.S. policies. I asked her what changes the Federation is hoping for. COSATU has congratulated the American people on conducting free and fair elections, and this is important for us, particularly at a time where democracy and democratic processes are under threat globally. So as we observe the change brought in by the incoming American government, COSATU hopes to see a change in policy orientation, which will be favorable to workers. We do believe that it is a time 
that the U.S. government delivered on the long overdue workers' first agenda. We hope to see a government that will be favorable to migrants through constructive immigration policies. We are aware that President Trump enacted more than 900 changes in immigration policy during his administration, and we believe that reversing these policies would be a vital part of Biden's administration's immigration agenda. We also hope to see the U.S. President-elect Joe Biden denounce human rights violations internally against minority groups and give more attention to discussions about the messy reality of a nation that remains in the grips of structural racism, white supremacy, and a racial caste system, as we are great supporters of the Black Lives Matter movement. And externally, we also hope to see him call against all repressive regimes globally. What are some of the Africa-specific initiatives COSATA would like to see from the United States? While Trump has pushed for significant cuts for foreign aid in the continent, the U.S. remains a leading donor in Africa, which has been largely instrumental in our fight against HIV-AIDS through PEPFAR, food security programs, and the like. Whilst the ultimate goal is to reach a point where foreign aid will not be a heavy reliance on the continent, we hope to see this continue to be prioritized by the Biden administration. Secondly, we also hope to see a return to multilateralism, which could translate into stronger U.S. backing for the African continental free trade area, rather than the Trump administration's approach to pursuing bilateral deals, which we've seen them do in the great example with Kenya. Thirdly, we hope to see a support for the extension of the African Growth and Opportunity Act, AGOA, beyond the specified period of 2025. We also hope to see a partial cooling of trade tensions with China, which could have a positive impact on African markets. Africa trades extensively with Beijing at the moment. Ultimately, Kosato would urge Mr. Biden to deploy his vast experience in tracking the negative consequences of nationalist politics on world affairs, which have created divisions and uncertainties, and to introduce greater engagement with Africa, which is on the basis of reciprocal respect and shared interests. Cosato has said it wants the U.S. to end certain embargoes and sanctions. What are they and why? As a working-class movement, Cosato has very strong and long-standing relationships with other working-class and global rights movements across the scale. And we advocate for an end to all forms of oppression and the pursuit of social justice all over the world. At the core of our solidarity activism is our support for the Palestinian struggle. So for us, amongst their immediate actions, we hope Biden and his Vice President Kamala Harris will immediately prioritize one of the most contentious foreign policy issues, which is the Israeli occupation of Palestine. As students and teachers move more to online education, serious questions are being raised about privacy. Radio Labor Seamary Ainsborough reports. As the pandemic forces many educational systems online, millions of students are using platforms which collect massive amounts of data on them and their teachers. How this data is being used and what privacy provisions are included have become crucial questions for unions. That is why Education International, the Global Union for Teachers and Other Educators, organized the webinar on the topic. The resource person in the webinar was Christina Coldclough, 
a data expert who has extensive experience with unions. The moderator was Christine Blower, a former General Secretary of the National Union of Teachers in the UK. Ms. Blower. Our first question, given that you've done a huge amount of work making unions aware of the pitfalls of data protection and so on, what do you think are the must-dos for education unions to protect their members in this area? What must we absolutely do? Capacity build, capacity build. You know, it's not just in education unions. It's across all unions in all sectors. We really need to up the ante, so to speak, in relation to understanding these digital tools, understanding, you know, what are the building blocks of an algorithm, knowing what questions to ask. So, you know, I'm helping a lot of unions to train not only the union leadership, the secretariats, but of course also the members in understanding these things. And this is something we urgently need to do. Well, that's a, that's a great answer, especially with the problem of algorithms, of which certainly teachers in the UK and Ireland are only too familiar with that, yes. with the landscape <laughs> we have. But I mean, I'm sure in other jurisdictions too. So let me just ask you this. You have a very strong focus in your work on the governance of data, as you just said, and algorithmic systems. So what role do unions have um, in governing these systems? And how do you think education unions can influence government to give them more say about teachers and students' data and how it's used and what mechanisms we should be trying to put in place? We know that data is money. Data is monetized all over the place, isn't it? Yes, so, and, and yeah. it shouldn't be, right? This, this is the problem number one. The moment we see data as a commodity that can be bought and sold is the moment we transcend the human rights, our privacy rights. Then we subordinate those rights to monetary value. But going back to your first part of your question, I think what, what education unions really have to understand is that this whole ed tech, so the technology of education, is such a huge market, predicted yeah. to rise to $285 billion in just three or four years. So, you know, when we've capacity built, so we know what we're talking about, we know what crit critical questions to ask, we should then start really looking into, number one, what systems are in place in our workplaces, in our schools, who owns these systems? Is it propriety systems that have been brought in and just implemented without further ado? We should be working very closely, demanding very clear demands with our education authorities. Why are they recommending or buying in these systems? What agreements do they have with these private tech companies around joint data access and control, for example? You know, I, I was spooked recently at a UNESCO event where a representative from one of these edtech companies was giving a speech. And slide number two, I think it was, had, we are extracting 50 million data points a day on our edtech, so on students, on children. And I then asked him, I said, well, what privacy rights, you know, concerns do you have for the children here? Oh, our data is anonymized, he said. Now, we then have to be smart enough to know where everything anonymized can be very quickly de-anonymized. So this is a brilliant case of where are the education authorities in this? What demands do they have? And what demands should 
the teachers and the unions have in each and every you know learning institution around this massive data extraction. Here with his report about union events is Labor Start correspondent Derek Blackadder. Each day, Labor Start's volunteers collect hundreds of news items about the struggles of workers and their unions from around the world in 36 languages. Here's a small sample of all that hard work. Our top stories section included links to coverage of a global online school for trade unionists looking to develop a strategy for successful strikes during the pandemic, the International Trade Union Confederation's concerns about the future of democracy in Haiti, and a thank you message to their supporters from the recently freed from prison trade union leaders of Belarus. This week, the emerging trends in our news coverage include the organizing efforts being made by migrant workers around the world as their working conditions are being exposed and worsened by the effects of the pandemic. In Spain, unions representing domestic workers, most of them migrants, have been working to free hundreds of women who have been held captive by their employers. Not only have they been virtually imprisoned, they've been working without pay since last March. Similar stories appear regularly from Hong Kong, South Africa, Singapore, and the Middle East, where affiliates of the International Domestic Workers Federation are fighting to free workers being held by their employers to repatriate them and to ensure that they are paid all of their entitlements. In most cases, this involves complicated negotiations with two governments just to allow the migrants to travel to their country of origin. At the same time, seasonal agricultural workers in Canada continue their organizing efforts. They received a big boost this week in the form of a precedent-setting labor tribunal decision that vastly improves the right of a migrant worker to complain about working conditions without having the threat of deportation hanging over them. The case involved a worker who complained about a lack of COVID-19 protection on a farm. When he complained, his employer canceled his visa and began the process of returning him to his home in Mexico. The worker's complaint came after hundreds of his comrades had been infected, dozens hospitalized, and after one with whom he shared a room had died. For our Working Women page, our volunteers found news of why so many black women trade unionists are running for elected office in Brazil this year, and the women whose lives were affected by the illegal police infiltration of British trade unions over the past 30 years. The free health and safety newswire we offer in cooperation with Hazards magazine carried stories about the effects of stress, long hours, and months without proper rest on health care workers in such countries as Ireland, South Africa, Germany, India, Canada, and Brazil. Current campaigns that we are running at the request of unions around the world include an urgent appeal for online solidarity with garment workers in Myanmar whose efforts to organize are being met with brutal repression. Look for details of this and other campaigns on our site. This is Derek Blackadder from Labor Start reporting for Radio Labor. Now here is how Cosato's 8th National Congress celebrated its final session.
And that's it. Labor news you can use. You can find our international features and daily newscasts at radiolabor.net. I'm Mark Belanger. Thank you for listening. And remember, it's all about solidarity. Okay, that was our radio labor feature, worldwide labor news and information. Uh, they put that out every week, and you can get on the radio labor website. I asked myself yesterday, what can Biden do for labor? Now, Biden identifies as a working class guy, even though some of his uh, initiatives in the past have been to put working class people in jail for a while. But here, this is Politico, and I'm going to read it, how Joe Biden would strengthen unions. Former President Joe Biden released a plan Friday to strengthen labor unions. Biden's proposal would, among other things, give employees more leverage to organize in the workplace, raise the hourly minimum wage to $15, and make it harder for businesses to classify workers as independent contractors rather than employees. And that, of course, was Prop 22. And the public voted with the ride companies to keep their employees as independent contractors. What would it do? Biden's plan would build on proposals already introduced by House Democrats and would res resurrect several Obama-era policies. Biden supports Democratic legislation that would allow employees to unionize by card check. The informal collection of authorization forms from a majority within a proposed bargaining unit. Current law gives employers the right to require a federal formal secret ballot election, which of course means that people can say they're for the union publicly and vote against it if they wish. And if that's what they want to do, that, you know, that's their choice. But it makes it much harder for, say, a union organizer to be on the job and know who's got his back or her back. Current law gives employers the right to require a formal secret ballot election overseen by the National Labor Relations Board. Biden's plan would make card check the default method, something that unions have long sought. Biden supports the Protecting the Right to Organize Act. 
2474, which would, among other things, enhance National Labor Relations Board's power by allowing it to levy punitive fines against employers who violate labor laws. Today, the agency is permitted only to collect back pay. House Education and Labor Committee Bobby Scott has called the PRO Act the most comprehensive legislation in recent history to strengthen workers' right to organize and bargain for higher wages, better benefits, and safer working conditions. Businesses, of course, opposed the bill, arguing that it would give unions too much power. Biden pledges to form a cabinet-level working group with representatives from labor unions that would, in the first 100 days of his administration, deliver a plan to dramatically increase union density and address economic inequality. In addition, Biden supports Democratic bills that would establish minimum collective bargaining rights for public sector employees and which would revive an Obama-era rule requiring additional disclosures for union-busting activities by management. Biden might find it difficult to keep the latter promise given the rule was blocked by a federal judge in 2016, requiring additional disclosures for union-busting employees. He says he would work with Congress to write a stricter law on employee misclassification, the practice of classifying worker and independent contractor in order to avoid providing various mandatory benefits. This bill was passed in California, but the Uber and Lyft people uh, Sponsored with $80 million, a counterproposal, um, which bases benefits instead of uh, rights, bases benefits on how much you work. And that, and uh, your work while you're waiting, waiting for uh, rides to come up is not counted as part of your work. He said he would restore and possibly expand an Obama-era rule that would have extended overtime eligibility to an additional 4.2 million workers. That regulation was enjoined by a federal court in Texas shortly before it was to take effect in December of 2016. The Trump administration substituted a rule expanding overtime eligibility to only 1.3 workers. Biden would increase the number of Labor Department employees who investigate wage theft, worker safety violations, and worker misclassification. He would also require government contractors to pledge neutrality on employee unionization efforts, to pay $15 an hour, and to provide family-saving benefits. 
It would impose a national ban on state right-to-work laws, which prevent unions from collecting fair share fees from union non-members, creating freeloaders. Like most of the candidates' labor plans, Biden's depends mainly on changes to the law, some of which Democrats have been seeking since passage of the Anti-Union Taft-Hartley Act. 1947. Changes to federal contracting and overtime requirements could be done administratively without participation from Congress. Okay. So that's what Joe Biden's about. And we'll see how much of it he can get done given that he's uh, faced with a hostile Senate, well, we'll see if it's hostile. There are two elections coming up in Georgia that could uh, change the balance. It could put Democrats in, in position of authority in the Senate. Okay. So that's what Biden will do, and let's hope he does it. <laughs> Oye, como va?
Joe working man's wife That's how I was defined As if that was my life My hope and my mind But I worked in a bake shop Did the housework at night And there was no time to stop for a young bird in flight. Well, in time, there were babies, and I had to make us a home. Joe was working two jobs, and I was always alone. to keep my right mind 
just to try to stay home. Talking and moving, we're gonna study and learn. Build a unity train on a straight arrow line. If today is the bosses, I know tomorrow is mine. No. 
Lalo Guerrero, transplanteme un corazón, transplant a heart for me. <clears throat> and before that, Barbara Dane, working class woman and the future is mine. And Bruce Springsteen with this little light of mine, this little light of mine was a request by Sylvia Romero. This is Labor and Love Radio, and you're tuned to Mutiny Radio. Let's take a little break here and be back shortly on the other side. Thank you. 
Okay. <clears throat> have some jazz. Jazz, <clears throat> unfortunately, it sounded like the the disc was damaged. Sorry about that. Look at labor notes now. The election shows labor's ground game matters, especially during a pandemic. Despite record turnout, the razor-thin margins that ousted Trump in the recent election sharply in illustrate the important role of field work, in-person conversations, and timely personal follow-up by trained canvassers, particularly when expensive expanding the electorate with black and Latino working-class voters. After 98% of its members were put out of work due to the pandemic, the Hospitality Workers Union Unite Here set out to make sure that those margins materialize in critical swing states by applying the best practices of workplace organizing to elections. The lessons of this outcome should not only be applied to future elections, but to the workplace and community organizing needed during this pandemic and during a Biden administration. <coughs> Unite Here brought the discipline, ambition, and methodology of its stellar workplace organizing to the election canvas operation. The union sent 1,700 canvassers, many of them black and Latino union members whose jobs and families were hit hard by COVID-19 to knock on doors in Nevada, Arizona, Florida, and Pennsylvania. <coughs> Despite being smaller than many other unions and with many members out of work and staff laid off, this was the largest canvassing operation in these states of any union during the election. The union developed a contactless canvassing model with the guidance of epidemiologists that included intensive training, personal protective equipment, and safety protocols. The operation proved that door-to-door -door canvassing can be done effectively <coughs> and safely during a pandemic, and more importantly, that it must be done. Biden campaign chose not to mobilize a traditional field campaign of in-person canvassing. <coughs> Even in critical swing states where the grassroots infrastructure is tenuous despite some shifts over several election cycles. That was a mistake. We cannot rely on suburban white-collar voters <coughs> to vote in ways that benefit the broader working class. Hear, hear. Working people, particularly alienated or infrequent voters, and non-white low-wage workers are where the resources have to be invested. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think it's obvious that Suburban voters are going to vote what they think is their own personal uh, interest. This is part of the middle class uh, 
ethos, I think, where people decide one election at a time or one candidate at a time. In other words, they don't have any baseline beliefs or alliances or awareness. They don't go into the booth saying, well, I'm a working person. How is this going to help working people like me? Instead, they go into the booth saying, well, I'm a middle class person. What's in this for me? And, and that's not to say that that's wrong. That's just how people are trained. And this article points out that we have to go after working people, alienated or infrequent voters, and non-white low-wage workers. That's where this victory was won. Bernie Sanders is trying hard to become the Secretary of Labor. And I don't see how he could ever get passed by uh, the Senate. Over 40 years, corporate America and the billionaire class have been waging a war against the trade union movement, causing devastating harm to the middle class and working class. See, this is what many middle class people don't get. When the working class does well, they do well. They rise or fall together. When oligarchs like Donald Trump tell us that the economy is booming, they are right. The economy is booming for the extremely rich and extremely profitable corporations in America. Most of whom, by the way, pay nothing or next to nothing in federal income taxes. Meanwhile, millions of working people of America barely get by, even before the pandemic hit, more than half of our people were living paycheck to paycheck. Tens of millions had no health insurance. And 500,000 slept on the streets. Over the past three decades, the top 1% increased its network by over $22 trillion. And the bottom 50% lost $776 billion. But what should give us hope is that despite, despite corporate right-wing efforts to dismantle the power of working people at every opportunity, workers are fighting back. And the trade union movement has won many important victories in the past several years. That's from Bernie Sanders. Build a compassionate nation. Let's read this one, Just Cause. We finally won Just Cause protection at the New Yorker after AOC and Warren refused to cross our picket line. After 95 years, at-will employment is over at the New Yorker. Our union finally won Just Cause in our first contract. Securing this protection took strong organizing and strategic mobilization on top of nearly two years of negotiations. What changed the tide was a digital picket of the New Yorker Festival. 
a week-long annual event where celebrities, politicians, and various experts discuss timely topics. The opening night was to feature Representative Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez and Sen Senator Elizabeth Warren talking about the future of progressivism. The New Yorker Union was formally recognized at in 2018 and has been at the bargaining table since November of that year. One of the biggest hang-ups is management's insistence that we remain an at-will workplace. Management can legally fire anyone at any time for almost any reason or no reason. Fosters a discriminatory culture that endangers journalists of color silences voices of dissent, and jeopardizes the internal independence of newsrooms. There has been a wave of media organizing in the past few years, but many young unions in the News Guild of New York are still fighting for first contracts. And several have faced resistance from management on the issue of just cause a concept that has been uncontroversial in other shops. At any rate, one of the two events of the festival's opening night was to feature Ocasio-Cortez and Warren. The event's theme, The Future of Progressivism, was the first, was the perfect setting for an action demanding that the New Yorker live up to its values it espouses. Targeting the ticket event posed a financial threat to the company while also challenging its image. AOC even tweeted to her 9 million followers, love the New Yorker, but Warren and I don't cross picket lines. Management claimed that the New Yorkers claimed about its employees like a family. Ah, yes, like a family, except you're one of the kids. You have to show care with action, one of the union leaders said. The company finally heard us. Friday before the election, we re received an offer to bargain through the weekend to save the week's following, the following week's events. bargaining committee met for 35 hours over the following three days. Many union unit members observed over Zoom, emphasizing what management was at last beginning to understand. Our shop was united in the pursuit of job security, and we were prepared to sacrifice a lot, even our weekends, to see it through. In the end, we won just cause, no exceptions. The New Yorker Festival was a success, and with Ocasio-Cortez and Warren event rescheduled to another night, and the tone of negotiations changed. For the first time in nearly two years, management treated union members as equals at the table. Our victory caused a domino effect. 
in weeks since. The unions at Wirecutter, BuzzFeed, News, and Ziff Davis have also secured just cause, proving that using power builds power. So there's a success for the labor movement. And let's see, let's hear about uh, labor and history in two minutes. And we'll start with November 12th, striking against privatization. Healthcare workers in Calgary, Alberta, Canada walked off the job in a wildcat strike. Budget cuts in Alberta, under the leadership of Premier Ralph Klein, had hit healthcare particularly hard. A massive restructuring plan called for deep cuts, privatization, and reducing services. As part of this trend, the Calgary Regional Health Authority had decided to contract out the work of 120 laundry personnel. The workers were members of the Canadian Union of Public Employees, Local 8. The laundry workers walked off the job in protest. Soon, they were joined in in solidarity on the picket line by housekeepers, orderlies, nurses, and other hospital workers. Eight hospitals across the city were impacted by the walkout. Community members joined in and marched on the picket lines, frustrated by the government cuts. Twice, the Labor Relations Board ordered the workers to go back to their jobs. Twice, the workers refused. The strike spread to Calgary, where more than 2,500 healthcare workers walked off the job. In Edmonton, workers stood ready to strike. Talk of a general strike began to circulate. In Calgary, the union met with management for a 19-hour marathon bargaining session, and the 10-day strike ended. The health authority agreed to wait eight months before contracting out any labor. Workers were given severance packages, and the government stopped any further cuts to the industry. But the settlement did little to appease the dissatisfaction of the health care workers. The strike had also shown the potential connections between workers' issues on the job and the concerns of community members. The cutbacks hurt both labor and the general public and brought them together to stand in solidarity. Like what you hear? Check out more at laborhistoryin2.com. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1927. That was the day that the Holland Tunnel, connecting New York City and New Jersey, opened for traffic. Before the tunnel, the only way to cross the Hudson River from the city to New Jersey was by ferry. City officials decided to build a tunnel to alleviate congestion. But they had a problem. All those cars driving underground would cause a potentially deadly buildup of carbon monoxide. There had to be a way to ventilate the tunnel. Engineer Clifford Holland came up with the solution. Big fans located at each end of the tunnel could draw fresh air into the passage. The giant fans were nearly as tall as a 10-story building. 
In honor of his engineering work, the tunnel was named after Holland, but he did not live to see the completion of his vision. The tunnel also owes its existence to unionized labor. The workers who performed the backbreaking work of digging New York's vehicle and subway tunnels called themselves the Sand Hogs. In a 1983 book about the union, written by Paul Delaney, a worker recounted his memories of the Holland Project, saying, quote, The turnover in workers was unbelievable. Men would work an hour or maybe a shift, and they'd never be seen on the job again. Even the strongest men were tired after 15 or 20 minutes in the air. And there was always the worry about being fired. If a man went for more than two sips of water during a shift, he was told to collect his wages and go home. 14 workers died on the project. More than a billion cars have made the trip under the Hudson River since it first opened. Labor History in Two brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and the Rick Smith Show. For more information, go to laborhistoryin2.com. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1938. That was the day that the National Federation of Telephone Workers was founded in New Orleans, Louisiana. Today, the union is known as the Communication Workers of America and represents 700,000 workers in a wide range of communication fields. Attempts to organize the telephone industry began as early as 1910 by the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers. By the end of the decade, the IBEW had more than 200 telephone unions. Growth in the number of union members in the telephone industry was greatly impeded due to World War I. During the war, President Woodrow Wilson issued an order to, quote, hereby take possession and assume control and supervision of each and every telegraph and telephone system and every part thereof within the jurisdiction of the United States. He placed control of the industry under the authority of the Postmaster General. After the war ended, telephone companies increasingly installed company unions as a way to control their workers' organizing efforts. Their aim was to stave off unionism from outside organizations. Nearly all of the IBEW locals lost their membership to company unions. But when Congress passed the Wagner Act in 1935, a new surge of independent unionism began in the telephone industry. In 1938, 31 organizations joined together in New Orleans to form the National Federation of Telephone Workers. It was a loose association of locally independent unions. But by 1947, it became clear that the union would have to form a strong national presence to negotiate with the nationwide companies. And the Communication Workers of America was born. Labor History in Two brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and the Rick Smith Show. Okay, there's our <clears throat> labor history, labor history uh, feature. Every week we play you three pieces of labor history from Rick Smith's Labor History in Two Minutes. Let's go for some music. Enough talk, huh? How about since we celebrated New Orleans, the birth of the community. 
the city of New Orleans, Illinois Central, Monday morning rail, 15 cars and 15 restless riders, three conductors and 25 sacks of mail, all along southbound all the sea. trains that have no names and freight yards filled with old black men and the graveyards of the rusty automobile. Mississippi darkness rolling down to the sea. But the towns and the people seem to just fade into a bad dream. And the steel rails still ain't heard the news. Conductors sang your songs again. And passengers will please refrain. This train has got to disappear in railroad blue. Good morning, America. 
Okay, so we had Coco Taylor with the Wang Dang Doodle. We had Willie Nelson and the Highwaymen with City of New Orleans celebrating the founding of the Communication Workers of America in 1947. Babe Brubeck's take on an old folk song and the Sultans of Swing. All right, let's listen to one of our Francescas. This is Francesca Fiorentini. Will Biden blow a chance to stop fascism? Here we go. Can't hear you. happening. Also feels a bit like the final scene in Jurassic Park. Remember when Dr. Grant, Ellie, Ian, John Hay Trump lost. <laughs> this feels good. This also feels a bit like the final scene in Jurassic Park. Remember when Dr. Grant, Ellie, Ian, John Hammond and the kids fly away from the island having barely escaped with their lives? Then it cuts back to the T-Rex who lets out a giant I won this election by a lot. That's what this moment in American history feels like. We barely got away from Trump with our lives. But the problem is, 
there's still dinosaurs back there. Trump voters, far-right extremists, and Republicans. And Joe Biden is a bit like Dr. Hammond, who's like, we can work with them. They'll have an epiphany. I'm Francesca Fiorentini, and we're looking at the lessons of the 2020 election for Democrats, and how to ensure that Trumpism does not rear its head again. Because after all, fascism finds a way. Retail e-commerce ventures is announcing the completed acquisition of distressed sports brands. Joe Biden won the presidency and Trump will be out of office come January. That is unless he refuses to leave, in which case the military will have the embarrassing task of removing him, the same way they'll have to remove all the Trump wigs from the nuclear warheads, which he might actually fire off in the next month and perhaps even at his own people. Have I mentioned there are five Jurassic Park movies? No matter what the urchin does, in a couple of short months, the real work begins. And inheriting this America is not an easy task. There's a health crisis, an economic crisis, a climate crisis, a crisis in policing, and Beyonce's activewear line has sold out. And now a debate is raging about how much Biden can get done, what those priorities are, and who he should be answering to. That debate has everything to do with the fact that Democrats lost House seats, may not win back the Senate, and didn't win by the percentages they thought they would. It's the kind of intra-party discord that can only be resolved by pushing Nate Silver and Nate Cohn out to sea. Sorry, Nate. It's for the good of the country. I'm sure you'll come up with odds for how long it'll take to find land, which will be wrong. Of course, on mainstream outlets, the debate about what's next for Biden and the Democrats is ironically dominated by a lot of former and current Republicans. He will govern from the middle. He will make deals. People on the far left and far right won't like it. For all the Republicans that came out, the Lincoln Project, those people have to be part of his governing coalition. I don't think the American people want to sign up for the Green New Deal. I don't think they're interested in Medicare for all. We're not going to be turning on a sharp left turn in terms of public policy. Frankly, the Democrats have to make it clear to the far left that they almost cost him this election. Wow, uh, okay, John, let's do this. First of all, between you and the career war criminals turned Biden supporters, you've got yourself a few dozen voters. And hey, look, that's enough moderates to swing jack shit. Watching never Trump Republicans convince themselves into thinking they know what all Americans want is a bit like listening to a sixth grade boy talking about what girls want. The thing about chicks is that they really like boys who are good at Minecraft, have asthma, and tell them how to wear their hair. If people are gonna BS about what Biden's mandate is, at least back it up with stats. Because as it turns out, there is no evidence that shows moderate Republicans swayed the election for Biden. In fact, quite the opposite. It was Trump who turned out Republicans and in staggering and upsetting numbers. Earlier this summer, we asked if racism would bring voters to the polls. It did, 70 million of them. This brand of racist authoritarianism was so powerful, it even brought some people of color out, who I assume voted on their way back from dropping off their abuela at ICE. But the fear of Trump also turned out more voters for Biden. And it was young people, people of color, and specifically women of color who care about progressive issues that Kasich considers far left that made the difference. 
62% of 18 to 29 year old voters voted for Biden, an estimated 10% increase specifically in battleground states. A near 90% of black voters came out for him, and in clincher states like Nevada and Arizona, the Latino vote overwhelmingly went to Biden and most likely made the difference. Mind you, that's in the face of disproportionate voter suppression of those same groups. Basically, young people and people of color were all Michael Jordan in the 1997 NBA Finals, racking up 38 points and a game winner while being sick with the flu. And somehow, Mitt Romney's trying to give the game ball to Luke Longley. You did nothing, Luke! Of course, the turnout didn't just materialize out of thin air. It was thanks to grassroots organizers who made it a priority to mobilize these communities that have been long taken for granted. As former Bernie Sanders campaign co-chair Nina Turner put it, it was not the political operatives at the Lincoln Project or the Third Way who knocked the doors, who spoke to the voters, who heard their concerns. It was laid off union members in South Phoenix, African American community organizers in Kenosha, Wisconsin, Latinx Zoomers in Reading, Pennsylvania. None of us intend to let the far right of the Democratic coalition claim a mandate for status quo politics. Girl, if you don't run for president one day, I swear to God. So let's look at all the radical politics of the people who came out for Biden and of those House Democrats who did manage to win their seats back. Despite what guys like Kasich and Romney think, no House Democrat who strongly endorsed Medicare for All lost their seat. I repeat, no House Democrat who strongly endorsed Medicare for All lost their seat. And young people are making the connection between having health care and this pandemic we're still not out of. Because we are living within COVID-19 pandemic, as well as a racial pandemic, I really feel as if healthcare is a key piece to ensure that everybody is well and healthy and alive. <laughs> All I heard was, I want my avocado toast. <laughs> The issues that young Biden voters said they were concerned about were the coronavirus, racism, and climate change. And yet the solutions to those problems are somehow seen as radical by the same conservatives who think fusion food is radical. I do not know what a Korean taco is, and I don't care to find out. One poll showed that openly talking about Biden's groundbreaking $2 trillion climate plan was explicitly mobilizing for those young voters. But obviously, they're typical Marxists wanting to redistribute all the life. What about Black Lives Matter and the calls to defund the police? Representative James Clyburn of South Carolina claims it alienates Democratic voters. And yet, while voter registration was at a worrisome low in the spring compared to the same period in 2016, it skyrocketed in the wake of the demonstrations over George Floyd's murder. The movement energy helped the electoral strategy. Voters are turning on status quo policies and candidates all over the country. It's why progressives like Cori Bush and Jamal Bowman and others keep successfully primarying moderate Democratic incumbents. And why voters, no matter which party, are blazing forward with ballot measures that weren't necessarily backed by Democratic leadership. Colorado passed a 12-week paid family leave law, the first of its kind in the nation. Arizona voted for a tax increase on the wealthy to fund public education. And four more states approved recreational marijuana, including red strongholds like South Dakota and Montana. Those states won't be red for long, though. I mean, how many stoner fascists do you know? Other than Elon Musk. 
In Florida, voters passed a $15 minimum wage, even though the state Democratic Party didn't endorse it, a reason one state representative believes her party lost seats in the state. The Democratic Party doesn't have values, that we run on an anti-Trump message and don't offer local solutions or ideas to inspire folks to actually come out and choose you to vote for you. Not endorsing a minimum wage measure, she said, was another example of why Democrats keep losing and revealed how beholden the party is to donors and consultants. Yeah, didn't we establish Democratic consultants are trash back in February after an Labor and Love signing off. Wishing you a good week and good work. Remember if one person gets a dollar they didn't work for, someone else worked for a dollar they didn't get. Get aboard me pirate ship as we set sail for the seas of mutiny radio.fm. From there, you can captain your own pirate ship as you sail through over 44 different shows for all of your listening pleasures. They've got live comedy to small business advice, LGBTQ friendly to sports, vinyl to gutter punk. MutinyRadio.fm has the best programming the Internet Ocean has to offer you. I bet my peg leg on it, or I ain't scurvy shit-faced McRat. <laughs> As the world gets wackier and less predictable in every way, it is more important than ever for us to all remember our roots. We wouldn't be here today if our ancestors hadn't had the capacity and the skills to take care of themselves and their communities using the resources in the natural world around them and their own two hands. My name is Wonia Thibault of Buckskin Revolution and Alone Season 6, and I started Buckskin Revolution not just to empower people with a wider range of skills to meet their basic needs, but also to inspire them with a sense of fulfillment and connection that comes with living a little closer to the earth and using our bodies, our minds, and our very DNA for what they evolved to do, 
to help us thrive without the need for modern technology and industry. If that sounds appealing to you, I hope you'll join me for the Fall 2020 Buckskin Revolution Online Skills Gathering, an eight-week learning experience designed to work within any schedule. It involves pre-recorded classes, live interactive sessions, and online community learning support from both myself and your fellow students. The need for these skills has never been more pressing, and Buckskin Revolution is working hard to bring them to you. I hope you can join us. Get connected with yourself and the world around you at buckskinrevolution.com. Billy Bob, you ever want to be funny? Well, my dogs think I'm funny, Daryl. Well, I mean, you ever want to be, like, in front of an audience? Like, other than, like, squirrels, dogs, and dead persons? Well, shoot. From time to time, I've been giving it a thought of two. You know, if you go to joke workshop, there's more than two peoples paying attention to your jokes, and they ain't even gonna be jerks about it. Daryl, are you serious? I can get people to listen to my jokes? And they'll even say nice things, dude, before they tell you how to get improvements. No way. What is this dang nabbit thing called? It's Joke Workshop. Joke Workshop? Yep, every Monday, 6 to 8 p.m. on the Mutant Radius. So you're saying I could tell my jokes every Monday from 6 to 8? That's what I'm saying. It's the Joke Workshop Mondays, 6 to 8 p.m. at the Mutant Radius. Yahoo! Hey, you, poetry reader. This is Bjork's sister, Mjork. It's okay. We also have a soul and a weekly poetry reading on Mutiny Radio's AltaCast. Zoomed every Wednesday at high noon from Glasgow, Scotland. One of our co-hosts from Choose Poetry, Choose Life, Andy Talbot, has a new poetry chapbook, Old Wounds, New Skin, which is available at analogsubmission.com now. Go buy it and don't let poets lie to you. Once again, that's Andy Talbot's new poetry chapbook, Old Wounds, New Skin, available at AnalogSubmission.com. I'm Michael Spiegelman. And I am Carl, not Spiegelman. Join us every Sunday, 2 to 4 p.m. Pacific Standard Time on MutinyRadio.fm for... Let's watch a full-length movie on... YouTube. We watch the best movies that... Uh, aren't they good? Well, they're chosen by uh, Here's you. his theme song again. Bye. Okay, bye. Watch a
Minnesota podcast, and you can listen on the go. San Francisco Mutiny Radio. San Francisco Mutiny Radio. MutinyRadio.fm. Why not make a donation? MutinyRadio.fm. Streaming live the station. MutinyRadio.fm. District of the Mission. MutinyRadio.fm. MutinyRadio.fm. Listen to live streaming radio. Or download a podcast and you can listen on the go. San Francisco Mutiny Radio. San Francisco Mutiny Radio. Look, why not go to mutinyradio.fm, hit the donate button, stream them live, download a podcast, have some fun! Ministry of Lava manages our national lava resources to ensure that we will always have a steady supply of lava to operate the nation's active volcanoes, which in turn power our cities and methamphetamine labs. As a matter of national security, we need to reduce our dependence on foreign lava, which means an expansion of domestic lava drilling. As your chancellor, I will build lava wells all over the country as well as secure access to more lava fields by invading Hawaii. Imagine orange gold spurting out from school playgrounds on the Great Plains and illuminating the Nebraska sky like fireworks on the 4th of July. Magma oozing over the rolling hills of Kentucky. Volcanic ash settling gently over homes in New England like fresh gray snow. Global lava markets to continue to be dominated by terriblest regimes like Iceland, Chile, and the Philippines. Vote for my opponent, who sits in their back pocket as comfortably as Pahoe Hoy on the slopes of Kilauea. If you want the United States to stay competitive in the era of peak lava and beyond, then take a chance on the Chancellor. Give it to me every time! Ah! 
My name is Breakfast, and I'm running for Chancellor of the United States of America. For too long, we have gone without a Chancellor who is willing to take bold leaps of faith and logic to create new possibilities for our great, big, fat nation. As your Chancellor, I will balance the budget on the head of a pin, give entertaining speeches, have scandalous affairs, write strongly worded letters to unpopular foreign leaders, look good on camera, end all hunger, crime, abuse, war, disease, disasters, sadness, depression, oppression, repression, suppression, transgression, obsession, expression, impression, regression, and digression by signing pieces of paper that express my disapproval of such things. Invest in an American flag pin to be worn prominently on my stylish jackets. It's time to work 